0: This week on Crossing the Lane Lines,
1: it's it's just really people people forget. You know, I think the other part is is that, um, and Janelle Atkinson and I had a very great conversation about this, particularly as a as a Black woman coach. Um, you know, as a people see us, I think, um, and so this is me talking from my own personal experience, not me as a researcher, um, that we have to play a part similar to the research that was done by the previous researchers. And, you know, talking about the experience, the definitions of what people see as black women, you know, in the role of being a black swim coach as a woman, people, some people's perception could easily be that you're their mammy. With
0: the possible exception. Of Jim Ellis and Anthony Nesty, most people in the swimming world wouldn't be able to name one black coach. If most black male coaches are hardly known, what does that say about black female coaches? Today we'll speak to researcher, former collegiate swimmer, and elite level swim coach Dr. Tiffany Monique Quash, About the challenges of being a black female coach, the absence of LGBTQ, and queer representation in the coaching ranks, and the need for white coaches to speak up and call out this disparity. All that's coming up. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. Throughout this podcast, I have sought to highlight the voices of black coaches. People like Nate Harding, Kevin Colquitt, and Malachi Cunningham, all very successful, have graced me with their time on this show. They've talked about their careers, their triumphs, challenges, and yes, the racism that they have endured. But in this celebratory haze that I find myself in, I realized that I have missed out on highlighting the amazing achievements of black female coaches. What about the triumphs, obstacles, racism, and sexism of amazing coaches like Gia Wright, Leah Stansel, and Tanika Jameson? Are their stories any less important? This episode is a challenge to not only myself, but also to other men, and in particular black men, to challenge, change, and listen to the experiences of black women swimmers and coaches. Joining us to talk more about this issue is Dr. Tiffany Monique Quash. Dr. Quash describes her mission in life as, quote, learning to swim is a human right, close quote. Her research focuses on the intersectionality of race, gender, class, and one's historical relationship with swimming. As a former collegiate swimmer and nation's capital swim coach, Dr. Quash works to improve the perceptions of one's black body in an aquatic space by listening to the stories of other black women swimmers. Outside of her research and publications, Dr. Quash serves as the director of operations with the International Water Safety Foundation or IWSF. The purpose of IWSF is, quote, raising drowning awareness while bringing basic swimming, water safety, and safe rescue skills to children. She is also the Qualitative Survey Research Methodologist for American University's Center for Teaching Research and Learning. Dr. Tiffany monique Quash welcomed to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so
1: much, Nazi.
0: Dr. Quash, we have a lot to talk about today, but before we do, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little background story on how you first began swimming and eventually your progression thereafter to competitive swimming and later on coaching.
1: My dad was an import-export officer for the Department of Agriculture. And I actually started, um, my interaction with the water actually started before then informally, With the ocean, um, because we lived in Puerto Rico. Um, but when we moved to South Carolina, I had formal, formal swim lessons. And the interesting thing about it was that I, um, remember swimming to the wall during one of my former, one of my lessons. And the instructor had turned her back as I was swimming to the wall. And all of us who are familiar with swim lessons and who have taught swim lessons, you never turn your back on a kid, and as I am reaching for the wall, I am going down, and my mother is watching me, and she's reaching and grabbing for me at the same time. Um, the instructor, mind you, has already turned her back. I am under the water, um, and I did not want to go back to some class. You know, I, my mom pulled me up out of the water, go to the bathroom, you know, and I'm like, I never want to go back. Never want to do anything like this ever again. You know, it's you know it's her fault. You know, I don't even remember what her looks like. It was my first negative experience with water, and then as I got older, you know, my mom really wanted me to be introduced to other sports that were not basketball. Um, So I did gymnastics. I did ballet. um, I played tennis. My mother played tennis as well. So we ended up coming back to swimming. So for some reason, just kept coming back to swimming. And where it really took off for myself and my brother was when my mom was diagnosed um, with scleroderma, which is an autoimmune disease when I was about 10 years old. Um, So we ended up moving to Virginia, where I'm originally from. And my parents soon after separated and my mom was like you know i I just want to make sure that my kids have an outlet so the outlet became um the pool and that pool was a ymca or local ymca in chesapeake virginia and my mom signed us up for uh the swim team uh (laughs) we did not know how to swim a lick um i mean we could swim we could we could survive we would not do as i would say like competitive we weren't ready for competitive swimming um but we did it for a while for a long time um i will say that my mother did not know how to swim i didn't know this at that time um and and you know we weren't brought up in a swimming community um we did not go to a country club for swimming during the summer so it was it was a very different time for us um my second coach was um this latino guy who i still talk to um and his assistant coach was a black guy and so to have two coaches of color as your coach i didn't recognize the significance of that at that time um now as an adult i do but they were the only two coaches of color when you know we would go to some meets and so for the longest time you know i was often the only black girl, there were three other, like, black males um, who swam, one which included my brother, the other uh, was our assistant coach's son, and then there was another kid from the community, but at times, I was often the only black girl, and as I got older, I was like, "Ah, I don't want to swim anymore, I want to play tennis. You know, I just really shifted from swimming to tennis, and I just, one day I just kind of walked out on deck, and I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't feel well, which I was fine, and I remember being on the deck with my head coach, and he had asked the team, that, that the older groups, the team, like, the older lanes, or the faster lanes, I should say, hey, if we leave on this interval, if the interval is this, and you leave at this time, you come back on this time, you know, what's, kind of like what's the interval kind of situation and I remember and this is again this is the time there was no digital clocks, this was analog clocks, and I remember sitting there and just saying I know the answer I know the answer and it was dead silence like you couldn't hear you could hear like water dropping right, like sense. and nobody had an answer I was like oh well you leave it this time like it's this the interval and it was like one of these really weird intervals it was like the interval was like I don't know, like 53 seconds or something. It wasn't like a 50 or a 45 or a one minute. It was something really, really weird and bizarre. And at least that's what I thought. And I just knew, I was like, wow, I know this. Like it just came so naturally for me. But it wasn't there that I recognized that I needed to be a coach. It would take years later after like I got my – lifeguarding after, I mean, mind you, I was a Y kid, Um, and so I learned how to, like I said, lifeguard, I was teaching swim lessons, you know, really just, I just loved being in and around the water, Um, but it would take me going off to college for me to realize, I was like, okay, I'm not a great swimmer, which, you know, we all have our, the things that we're really great at, but it was my college swimming career that really changed how I felt about myself, my physical body being in the water. Um, and I tell this story a lot to other people. You know, I went to a Division three school, um, Randolph-Macon Women's College, which is in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is now Randolph College. And um, I played tennis there for three and a half years, um, swam for two years. The so half a year I, I actually went to um, American University for their Washington semester program. But in the two years that I swam, I knew I actually knew my head coach prior to I knew of him. I knew his father in law. You don't have to swim fast just because certain people are here. And I'm like wait, what? You know, and <laughs> and to this say like something like that sticks with you, you know? Like that's not that's not some uh naughty I'm gonna just gonna say that's not some shit you can turn off. You know? Like who says that? You know, and so it really it really stuck with me and but I didn't know how to say something. I mean, mind you, this is circa nineteen ninety seven. You know, I didn't know how to say, like, my coach, my white male coach, just told me something that's completely off the wall, right either like it was before or after I got in the water to swim my event, like trying to throw me off my game. You know? And I was just like, you know what, just you know, like my mom would just say, like, and junior year were really tough. My mom got really sick sophomore year. Junior year, she, she was definitely really, really sick. It was reported back to him what I said. And uh, I got kicked off the team. Um, other people are going to remember that story differently. You know, <laughs> the only people who remember what actually happened are probably the people who, were, you know, were myself and the other girl. I got kicked off the team, and it was just the hardest thing that I felt like ever happened to me because I don't know why. I knew I wasn't the fastest swimmer, but I just swore off swimming at that point. I was like, obviously, like, the sport doesn't want me. Like, I'm just going to say screw it, right? And then after I graduated from high school, or excuse me, from un- from undergrad, I was like, you know, I went home, came back to my hometown, you know, I felt like I just needed to reconnect and with people home, at home, and with my grandparents and things like that, and I just ended up teaching swimming lessons, and, and I really, but I, you know, I didn't coach, you know, I really wanted to coach, but I didn't coach, but I didn't, and, and I didn't start coaching until I moved to Massachusetts and then to California coached at La Kenyatta High School, um, coached the girls there. Um, when I was, I was there for one year as a head coach, girls head coach. And that was the one time the three coaches, all of us are coaches of color, are first place across the board. Like, <laughs> it was a three-way tie in the district. So it was amazing. Um First time, probably the last time that ever happened. Um, I was definitely there first black coach even as a head coach in that experience you know first time as a head coach super excited and I had an assistant coach who was a friend of mine Uh, she's a white woman and we were at a swim meet you know again I'm thinking like hey you know I'm in California nothing too crazy is going to happen to me right and we get to a, a, a swim meet and I needed to change my lineup. And, or I needed to put something in. It was like, I needed to go to the table and give them some information. And the person that was sitting behind the table, instead of looking at me, she's looking at my assistant coach. And the assistant coach is looking back at this woman who's also white and is like, I'm not the head coach. Your head coach, she's right here. This, this is Tiffany Quash. She was just, she acted so put out. Like, yeah. I'm like, what did I do to you? Like, you know, I mean, there were two other things I needed to get done, but it was like, like, did I do something, you know? And and my assistant coach at the time who came back and was like my assistant coach for another team, Katie was just like, yeah, I saw that. But there was nothing like there was nothing either one of us could do, you know? Um, and on top of that, we're at this white school who like they're not taking me seriously. The admin's not taking me seriously. You know, I am, quote, unquote, too hard on the kids. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So ended up coaching a La Cañada, ironically, La Cañada country club for two summers. Uh, We went from, I I always kind of think of us as like the bad news bears. You know, they kind of look like a, like, even though it was a country club, it was like somebody just, I don't know, put putting on a spoon and threw up against the wall. And, you know, I was like, no, we're not going to go out looking like that. Got all new uniforms. You know, they looked amazing. And, I mean, other coaches, other coaches were commenting like, wow, you got this team together. You know, grew the team from like, give or take, like 20 kids, like 20 families, 20 kids, to like 108, 110, and like over a summer, you know. So did that, coach at the Rose Bowl. And then when I got accepted to Indiana University for a dot councilman is from, which is everybody like, like yes, the god of swimming, you know, I was like, I'm out, you know, ended up coaching at Bloomington Swim Club, which is now morphed into another team. Um, but before I left California, the one team that will always have a place in my heart is Bravo Medical Magnet High School, and it's in East L.A., Every single one of my kids, I mean, if you know LA, the magnet school, in that part of East LA is a magnet school. Every single one of my kids, just they went on to college. They weren't on, all of them were not on swimming scholarships. They're all students of color. I remember us going to, uh, to kind of like districts, and one of my swimmers looked at me and she says, why are there so many white people here? And I thought to myself, oh, that's right. Like, there's no, you know, we have been swimming in our own league. And in our league, there's a lot more kids of color and mostly Latinx kids. And then when you get to district where it's, you know, a little bit, a lot more, most of those kids are white kids. You know, and so I complete, I hadn't, it hadn't clicked. And when she said it, it was like, huh, you know, this is this is that moment. So, I, you know, I love my Bravo kids because we ended up going to State twice, took the same kid to State twice. Um, the second time she was just like, you know what, I, I want to have my senior year. I was like, cool. But I still keep in contact with those kids. And it was those kids that changed my life um, because they reminded me like why I love this sport. Um, it was because of them that I was reminded why my coach back at the YMCA in Chesapeake, Virginia, took me under his wing, he and, and the assistant coach and were like, Hey, listen, you know how to do this, you know how to do that. Like, um kind of giving me a little tips here and there, even when I didn't want to be in practice. And I was able to to pay it forward.
0: I want to circle back to something that you just now answered. You talked about being a 5-year-old and having a traumatic experience in the pool. And this leaves me excuse me this leads me to my next question. You've been quoted as saying that quote learning to swim is a human right close quote. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this.
1: Yeah, so um so i'm gonna I'm gonna set that up in in two parts, okay, so the first part I want to talk about you know what a human right is you know the United nations and again look up what the United Nations is people, so the United Nations defines um what a human you know, human rights are inherent rights to all humans you know being regardless of race, sex nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, and other statuses right um then right off the uh, right site from the UN. Um, and from there, there's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, but there's three specific articles that you know, I like to look at. When I, when I said, I created this idea like learning to swim is a human right. There's Article 23, which is the Protection of Employment, which I'll come back around to. Article 24, which is the right to rest in leisure. Um, to, to kind of break that one up specifically focusing on leisure, you know, my, so my degree is in leisure behavior. Um, so for all of all those leisure scholars that are out there, please do not take me to task on this. Um, so, you know, when we define leisure, you know, it's the time, like it is the time of rest, the time to, like, be able to do what you want to do. But then maybe it's something like how you define it. You know, maybe for some of us it is going to swim. It is Maybe it is, like, not having to think about, when you have when you have to be doing something Um, but leisure has definitely been defined by white people and specifically white people with money Um, but by the time the UN has gotten to this you still have a right to leisure okay and then article 24 which is the right to education so when we're thinking of, so I need people to shelve that and be like, okay, we're thinking of employment, we're talking about leisure, and we're talking about education. At the end of the, end of the day, the, the the universal declaration of human rights is really a protection of well being and social progress. That's really what it is. Um, so we're going to shelve that there. So that's part one. Then there's part two. Um, and the research, and now, so, Again, part one, I'm wearing my IWSF, my International Water Safety Foundation hat on, okay? So part two, I'm going to stick my, my researcher hat and my IWSF, International Water Safety Foundation hat on. And I'll say this probably occasionally throughout our conversation today. Um, so a lot of the research that has been done, particularly on the drowning disparity, has focused heavily on race. Um, and that research has been c- completed by Gilcrest in 2014, Clemens, Moreland, and Lee in 2021. And this information is, is distributed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention so the CDC. And these results really provide information about people who are at high higher risk of drowning. And that includes, again, children between one and four, males risk, uh, males because of their risk risk, uh, taking behavior and alcohol use so i don't know what y'all men is going going doing over there but get it together okay um three some racial and ethnic groups and then four medical conditions but i want to go back to four so four you know the drowning death rate for black people are one and a half times higher than white so now again we're taking part one and then we're taking part two and based on these definitions it really is like understanding that swimming and learning to swim is a human right and that drowning is preventable. And it really led me to this conclusion that learning to swim is a human right. Okay, so we wouldn't have these deaths if people actually learned how to swim and if they were given the opportunity to swim. And I, I love your podcast because, first off, I'm so jealous that you get to talk to all of the people out there that I get to read about, you know, like Jeff from Contested Waters, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm so excited that, you know, Dr. Dawson, I'm just like, hey, I remember talking to him when I was not quite a PhD, but, you know, there are people who are out there, they're doing this research, and it's like, listen, if we can just get people to say That learning to swim is a human right. It's not a privilege. It's not. Now me wearing, again, and now I'm going to switch hats, wearing my IWSF hat or maybe take my researcher hat off and my IWSF hat on, the world is made up of a lot of water. We're just going to put it out there, a lot of water. So think about it this. If people learned how to swim, we wouldn't have people drowning. So we gave them the opportunity, if we gave them the tools, they can make this, let's go back to Article 23, an opportunity for employment. So, again, we consider, in general, we consider swimming a leisure activity. You don't have to swim, but it can be considered a leisure activity. But it's the fact that you're given this education. If education was given for free, which you talked about, you know, with, with Sean, from your pre- the, the other... <laughs> I'm just going to go down the list of all the people who have come on your show. You know, given the education, I know Dr. Uh, Miriam Lynch and I, the CEO of Diversity and Aquatics, we talk about this all the time. If you're given the education to learn how to swim, then you're given future employment opportunities. Thus, my own quote, learning to swim is a human right
0: part of your work is to improve the perceptions of one's black body in an aquatic space by listening to the stories of other black women swimmers. Now, I'm bringing this up because often when people think of a female swimmer's body, images of a sleek white woman often come to mind, you know, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, buxom young woman. The perception in swimming is that you have to look a certain way to swim fast or efficient, thus reinforcing negative stereotypes about body image. Now, swimmers like Simone Manuel are at times accused of being too masculine or referred to as, quote, a beast in the water, while Katie Ledecky is thought to be, quote, a warrior when she swims. Dr. Quash, it seems that whenever a black female athlete has success in a sport they are negatively referenced and when it's a white woman they are praised what why is that
1: there's so many reasons <laughs> so much there's so much um so there's there's the begin the beginning that I want to start out with is that the experiences of black women black and brown women So I'm saying black with a capital B and then black, lowercase b, and brown, lowercase b, women are often silenced when we're talking about our experiences and most importantly, how we are described. It is not by choice that we want to be described as beef. So that's number one. Um, these, between that and then other sports, you know, when we're thinking of, usually, I I hate to say that the go to, um, and I say that with air quotes and I, you know, it breaks my heart to even say that, um, you know, Serena Williams. How she was defined, you know, people on Twitter said she was a gorilla, she looked too manly. I remember that when I, um, when I played tennis and I was swimming um, in college and in high school, it was like I was considered too manly. And this is, you know, it's like you're not feminine enough. Um, And there's there's other examples that we've either heard in the media or in passing and unfortunately even culturally. Um, And it just doesn't stop there. I mean, but there was a 2008 article by McKay and Johnson that really discusses black athletes and how they're situated in the historical context of black women's enslavement and explaining like the words and the descriptions of our bodies and hyper muscular and sexually grotesque and I will say saying you know having said that is very correlates to the research that I have done where When I interviewed 25 black women who were from historically black colleges and universities and or they attended PWI, so primary white institutions, a lot of people will refer to them as predominantly white institutions. I use primary white institutions um, and I do that consciously. Uh, People did talk about body image. They did talk about how, you know, I don't wanna appear manly. I don't want, um, I don't want to be, and again, I don't want to be considered gay. And of course, for me, I, I was like, wait, I'm out. Like, I don't, wait, am I, gay? you know, it just, it, it, it definitely plays in your head. Um, so having said that, and then going back to this particular article, you know, the authors definitely identify like language of imagery and it's, it's really surmised as like black women as Jezebels, as Mammies, you're the welfare queen. And this is juxtaposed with, you know, that the words of unfeminine and strange. And the the foundation of that is enslavement. That narrative has been described by white people and white scholars. Um and it's really important for me to like push back and say yeah this is what has been said now let's fix it because we know that it's not right and most importantly these are not our words these are not our words nobody is asking other black women athletes how would you describe your experience or how do you you know they're not asking questions they're not asking those basic questions you know and you know, the, to come up with the word, like, and say beast or gorilla, It's, I mean, it just tells you what kind of, um, what our society is and who's been driving that narrative. And unfortunately, the people who have been driving that narrative typically are, are white men. Now, I don't want people going home and being like, that's Dr. Tiffany Monique Quash, let me look her up, and she's, like, anti-white. And I'm like, listen, check yourself, check yourself. Because we need to understand, like, where the source of this is from. And the source, I mean, Dr. Dawson talks about it. I know everybody cites him now that his book is back. You know, it's like, you know, the reality is that people talk about, people have always talked about how black women's bodies are, they're not feminine enough. We've never, quote, unquote, we've never been feminine enough. I mean, you can even think about how people would describe Um, Harriet Tubman Like, let's go that far back you know so why is it it's because people who are controlling the narrative typically are white men it is our job all of the time to change the narrative and sometimes we find ourselves holding it up by ourselves and it's and it's just really really unfortunate it gets frustrating um, but I think people like myself, you know, I'm going to always say um, Dr. Miriam Lynch's name because, you know, she as the CEO of in Aquatics and then me sitting with the International Water Safety Foundation, you know, we are always running into this, like, line of, okay, when am I wearing my IWSF hat or when am I wearing my DIA hat and then when am I wearing my researcher hat? For both of us and so again it's it's really like how can we continue to uplift our own our own being other black and brown women um in this space in this aquatic space um and at the same time be able to say hey listen uh, you know our white accomplices we need you to get on get on with us get on board and understand like you can't say these things so it's Where is it coming from? Why do they see it? Because it's easy, because it's easy. They have no other word to describe. It's like the language is lost, and it's very frustrating. So the only way that we can drive them to task is to be better.
0: As I mentioned in my introduction, most who follow swimming wouldn't know the names of the black male coaches that have been on this podcast. And fewer still, if any, would know who Janelle Atkinson is, Leah Stansel, or Nadine Johnson. Though all of them are women who coach on the collegiate and elite club level. Dr. Quash, why is it that these women remain invisible in the sport of swimming?
1: So. One of the reasons is, one, um, swimming continues to be a good old boy sport. That's number one. It remains to be a good old boy sport. And when I say this, it's not um, throwing my black and brown brothers under the bus by any means. But I think what happens is, is that and Dr. Mary Milich and I were just talking about this, you know, what happens is that people are forced to choose who comes to the table, you know. So instead of, like, bringing a chair to that table and saying, hey, here's a spot for my buddy, you know, who might happen to be one of these three amazing women, and then also I want to throw in that list, like Melissa Wilborn, you know, um, it's... It's, it's just really people, people forget. You know, I think the other part is, is that, um, and Janelle Atkinson and I had a very great conversation about this, particularly as a, as a black woman coach. Um, you know, as a, people see us, I think, um, and so this is me talking from my own personal experience, not me as a researcher, um, that we have to play a part. Similar to the research that was done by the previous researchers and, you know, talking about the experience, the definitions of what people see as black women, you know, in the role of being a black swim coach as a woman, people, some people's perception could easily be that you're their mammy. And I don't think, I don't think of any of us as that way. You know, so when you are coaching, people don't expect, um, like when we have, like when some of these people have a loud voice, like Janelle has a very loud voice. I have a very loud voice. I mean, I know I can talk and you can hear me across the pool deck, like across at least 20 lanes, you know, <laughs> and um, it takes people by surprise and it's like, oh, well, she's mean. Whereas some of my white colleagues, particularly other places I've coached, it's okay if they have like a whiny voice. It's okay if they have like a low voice and they don't project, but I'm automatically considered mean. Again, that's Tiffany wearing her personal hat. Me wearing my PhD hat, again, it's, we're talking about gatekeepers. We're talking about people being unable to make space and make room. On the flip side, we're also talking about the fact that, you know, the the responsibility cannot always be left up to black men to make that room at the table or that seat at the table. We have to place that responsibility back on everybody else, and, and I think that's where we have to start. A lot of, um, a lot of the time, you know, maybe it is. I don't want to say resources. You know, but it just becomes invisible. Like, we just become invisible. We know where we are. We know we are. Um, But for some reason, people just want to hail the experiences of black male coaches. And it's like we're just forgotten. Or at least we're seen in other spaces. Again, that's my own, that's me wearing my personal hat, not... (laughs)
0: It seems like there's a lot of discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion within the swimming ranks. USA Swimming has trotted out a number of committees, meetings, and whispering the words Black Lives Matter. However, since the lynching of George Floyd last year, and more recently, Cleek Keller pleading guilty to one felony count after he was seen on video storming our nation's capital with other white supremacists, Orfina's ban of the maker of cap to have their headwear worn at these past Olympics, USA Swimming has done nothing to show that they truly believe that Black Lives Matter. So if we're talking about DEI and swimming and making swimming more welcoming and inclusive, how can we possibly trust an organization that won't do the bare minimum in condemning racist murderers? Or former members who actively sought to disenfranchise Black and Brown people exercising the right to vote, or the racism of an international swimming body for saying that swim caps currently being used can easily fit the head of any swimmer.
1: Now I appreciate this question. Um, I have to. I have struggled. I, I so me as a singular entity, not as a. Current coach, not as a scholar, not as somebody who works with the International Water Safety Foundation or anybody who works um, associated with diversity and aquatics. To me, as Tiffany Quash, the human, I've struggled. You know, I have struggled personally to understand my role with USA Swimming. I have struggled to understand why USA Swimming has made decisions that they have made I have struggled to understand just in general like why why aren't we moving forward um and it has taken a lot it has taken a lot so that's me saying that as an individual me saying it as addressing this question as a coach. Um, and, again, I, have to, I have, to, have to, like, shift hats occasionally. So me responding to this question as a coach, a coach that's associated with USA Swimming, um, yes, there are missteps. Yes. Um, can USA Swimming do better? Yes. Um, are there multiple conversations that are had in DEI? Yes. Around DEI um, um, issues? Yes. Um can we expect better? Yes. Should we expect better? Yes. Should we demand better? Most definitely yes. How do we get there? I think that the way that we get there is number 1 I mean, and I will openly say I'm on <laughs> I, I'm on the DEI committee for uh, Potomac Valley as well. And and the way that we get there is by one we've got to. And I've always had problems saying call in people because I'm quick to be like, no, we got to call people out. Just call them out. You know, uh, <laughs> that's my non pedagogy <laughs> headset and uh, mindset and but, you know, we have to say, okay, you already know how you like rub people the wrong way. And I think that the response that um I, I think that the response that of, of diversity and aquatics helping USA swimming with some of their DEI efforts is a plus. Um I think that um, the response from the national and international community about the initial uh, statement, if we can call it that, was, yes, it was a little troubling, hence the reason why they went back and said, hey, we got to fix it. I think the really, you know, the interesting thing, like moving forward, because they recognize that there are these problems, um and they are recognizing that they have a lot to learn. Whether or not they're learning it is a different story, but they do recognize that they have a lot to learn is that number one, now they've got these community grants, um, these community impact grants um that are offering like a quarter over a quarter of a million dollars over the next three years. And then like, you know, a lot of the conversation has been around HBCUs. Um, because right now, as we all know howard university is the only institution that has an hbcu i'm sorry L- H- hbcu that has a swim team excuse me um North Carolina t no longer has a swim team and so it's like if if there is a way to create a program you know a lesson instruction and eventually a varsity program it really it would help to to kind of pump that up and so Dr. Sean Anderson is in in USA, who is with USA Swimming, is really a part of that initiative. Leland Brown is a part of the other initiative. You know, so this is this is really really good. You know, um, is is this it? No. Do they have a lot more to do? Yes. On the outside of that, so so big picture, because I think USA Swimming, as as somebody has told me, probably Dr. Anderson. He said to me, you know, it's easy to throw rocks at a glass house, the glass house being USA Swimming, you know. Like when, when Postergate with American Red Cross came out, it's easy to throw those rocks coming on, If anybody doesn't know about that, it was a poster that said what you can't do, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, and everything that what you shouldn't have been doing was black and brown kids, right? So we call it Postergate. So, you know, it's easy to throw those rocks more like boulders um that's small like small picture bigger picture is that okay how do we get past this so how we get past it is you know we're talking about um policies and practices that have not allowed black and brown people to swim so Dr. Uh, Angela buell who I absolutely love, who was on my dissertation committee, she's been on other people's dissertation committees, um, she's at Warren own university, Dr. Linda Kwan, Elizabeth Bennett, Boy uh, Fielding, they wrote this article on promoting equity, social justice, and saving lives with life jacket and clothing policies. It really talks about how clothing policies are, I mean, I'm just going to repeat the title, how clothing policies have impacted black and brown people. Big picture. Big picture. Like, how many of you out there have gone to a pool, particularly in a black and brown neighborhood, and you've got kids who are wearing their underwear under their swimsuits? That's big picture. We're talking clothing policies, and we're talking about swimming, and we're talking about bodies. Big picture. You know, um, you know, talking about um, the ban on uh, the, the uh, was it the burkinis um, in France. That's, again, who does that impact? Uh, women of color um, and re- women um, and religion. Big picture. Big picture. Um, when we're talking about Breckin and Willis in 2019, September 2019, and the whole, like, Swimsuit issue and she being DQ'd, and it's like, oh yeah, never mind, we don't want to DQ you, but the initial DQ happened to be from this white woman who, like, pretty much had it out for her and her sister. Big picture. Like, people are like, mm, body, like, swimsuits don't fit in the body. Well, it's not like Brecken picked out that suit, number one, and it's not like, I mean, like, no, come on. Like, big picture, there needs to be education of rest. Big picture. So, At the end of the day, like, do we know that people like Cleat exist not just in USA swimming, but not and not just in this sport, but throughout the world? Yes. The question is, what are we gonna do to end it? And that's a journey. And I think that that is the journey that USA swimming is on. I think it's really hard for them, and it's really Challenging for some, not all, but for some of us, for some Black and Brown folks, but I'll speak for myself, to to just kind of watch it unfold, you know, because it's like you want to be a part of the solution, but at the same time, it's like how come you don't know this stuff already, you know? Um, so it's it's a really interesting line. It's like, eh, well, I guess in order to to make things better, you have to be a part of the solution um so it's really you know it's like we have got to make things inclusive and then we have to think big picture while at the same time it's it's really really hard on top of all this we haven't even addressed the trauma so again completely going a little left the trauma of everything that has happened in the past two years that includes the pandemic has had not just on Like, not just the coaches, but the swimmers. And I'm not even talking about the elite athletes. The trauma of the pandemic, the trauma of watching people being killed, being lynched, the trauma of watching um, the trials, like just back-to-back trials. We've had three, what, three, four trials, four trials? So we haven't even addressed that. Like, people want to talk about, oh, mental health, mental health, which I am a strong advocate for mental health. But people use it so vaguely. It's like people are not addressing, okay, how do you, like, yes, Black Lives Matter, okay, that's all well and fine. But when was the last time you said, hey, how are you really doing? And really meant it. And that's kind of where I feel like DEI an all, like bigger picture DEI could do a better job. Now, please, folks, do not go and find me on and in, in Instagram or wherever, because I don't really check my Instagram, and be like, hey, listen, hi, Dr. Quash, how are you doing? You're like, no, <laughs> no don't, it's not a hug your black friend day, but it is a check on your black friend day, and that should be every day, and do it authentically. And I think that's the thing is that people just caught other people and other organizations not being authentic. And we're just trying to help people out.
0: Recently, I had Dr. Johanna Mellis, a former D1 swimmer, elite level swim coach, and co-host of the podcast, The End of Sport, on the show. She called out the need for white women in positions of power to speak out about the racism, the sexism, sexual orientation bias that not only plagues sport in general, but in particular, how it really affects black female swimmers and black female coaches. Dr. Quash, how much responsibility do white female coaches have in using their voices to call out this racist and gender bias that is targeting black women in swimming and prohibiting their advancement in sport?
1: Short answer, 100%. They they, they need to own 100%. You know, I... a lot of so when we talk about theory so you know there's feminist theory well i'm wearing my feminist theory hat wearing my phd hat you know thinking about feminist theory there's been this there was like at the very beginning and like talking about emissaries like this back and forth of okay like yeah we're we're all talking about all women but the reality with the creation of feminist theory it really wasn't talking about all women it was talking about white women it was talking about white women from a certain pedigree, if you want to say that, you know. Um, But out of that came black feminist theory, right? It's like, nope, we got to talk about women, black women, the end, end of story, boom, you know. And it's it's definitely a challenge, you know, because you can't, it's not saying that you can't have one without the other, but as a woman, like, we understand the found our basic rights. Like, we understand what it's like to be a swimmer. We understand what it's like to be a coach, right? And then you understand what it's like to be a woman or a girl swimming or a woman coaching. But then you put that extra layer on there of race, sexuality. And anything else but you have to make sure you juxtapose that with with race like anything other than white white women don't always get it and it takes a lot of energy and effort on women of color of black and brown women to sometimes call out their white sisters and it's 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 a lot of work. You know, I remember having a conversation with um a coach, a white woman coach, and I asked her a question about like, Oh, why don't you join D E I efforts? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And she's like, No. I was like, But come on, like you've got so much you got so much pull. She goes, you know, y'all don't need me. And I'm just sitting there like, Are you kidding me? Like we need your voice. You know, so I said to her, I was like, you know, I challenge you. I you know, I will help you with X, Y, and Z and analyze your program because that's what I do as a qualitative researcher and survey methodologist, like helping people like understand their reasons. I was like, Oh, you do this. I need you to like do an DEI. She's like she just laughed at me. You know? And it was like in that moment I realized she wasn't gonna take me seriously. And it hurts it hurts because as a black woman i have to do the extra work and it's like extra work that i shouldn't have to do um and i have to explain to white women like hey please don't go touch somebody's hair right please don't go do that please don't you know why should i even have to say please like no, you can't. You can't. I like, push on the fact that so and so can't come to swim to to a swim meet on a day that you know they have their religious practice. That was one thing that my mom was adamant about. Um, that my my former coach reminded me of the other day. He was like, "Yeah, your mom. You know, your mom wouldn't let you come to swim meets on a Sunday because y'all were in church." And he was like, "Yeah, I had to push back." I was like, "You know, my mom's not gonna do that." So, you can't, you can't, you just can't, you know, like, don't, you can't do that. So, I mean, I think white women don't understand, they just don't understand some white women. I think it's important to say some white women. I think it's also important to say that when we, that when I wear that hat of, okay, race, gender, and heterosexism or, in other words, homophobia, um, I don't always like say homophobia, so heterosexism, you know, it's, when we're talking about those things um, together, a lot of white women who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community, it's like they don't think about race, at least the ones that I've spoken to. I have my one, and she's amazing, and she is an accomplice. By the way, she's an accomplice, you know, but... The others, I always have to break it down. It requires, people don't understand the the brain work that it requires, the energy, the emotional toil. So here's the reason why I was really, not to say I was excited, but when the CDC said that racism is is a health concern, it's a public health concern. Like black women, yes, we are dying at a higher rate, not just because of, okay, yeah, we we have all these other stressors, racism. The end. So come on, black women I and mean, white women, I need you to step it up. I'm tired. I'm too tired to be tired, but I'm tired. So I need I need I need and I need you I need white women to step it up. And when you step up, can you bring me with because I, I think I've earned my street cred, as I said to, to my swimmers. I've earned my street cred. I got the Ph.D. I've been to state. I may not have been that Olympic star which I will never have that time to shine, which is fine with me because that was not my supposed to be my path. But come on. Like, let me in the room. Let my other sisters in the room. And, I, and, I, and I, we just need to make that space. We need to, we need to make that space for other, other trans athletes. Trans athletes of color, Did we need to make that space. I mean, we, we could just go on and on and on. And I'm just, it, it really frustrates me because white, straight women, cis, straight, white women, it's like they get to the top and they forget.
0: Often when the swimming world is praising a black coach, it is more than likely a black man. Even though there aren't a high number of black men in the coaching ranks that are known to the general swimming community, they are certainly more familiar to folks than black women coaches. How important is it that black male coaches start demanding more equity for black female coaches, not just in the club and college ranks, but at all levels?
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's (laughs) it's kind of interesting. Again, I had a really good good conversation with my my buddy. I um, I think I, I feel like I've said Dr. Interview like a couple of times and we you know it's it's kind of interesting because we we have two similar but also very interesting views on this. And and that is like it's not just the black male coach's responsibility but it's also everybody else's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility number 1. And number two, we have to, you know, as she was reminding me, like, we got to rethink this structure. You know, I also, so that was the conversation, like, you know, Dr. Lynch and I had. You know, I also personally, and again, this is me wearing my hat, my Tiffany Quash hat. Um, sometimes I feel like I get pushed out, to be very honest with you. Um, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes I feel like, not just black men, but men in general, do a lot of mansplaining. Um, So I was, ironically, I was coaching not too long ago, a couple days ago, and there was a coach that was standing behind me, and I was explaining a set, and the coach was actually making the motions of what I was explaining. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, you're going to do, like, 100 IM, da, 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 da. And as I was saying it, he's, like, making the kick motion for breaststroke, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, excuse me, but it was just like, you know, and I couldn't in that moment turn around and be like, you know, I really would appreciate you not do that, but it really made me angry. of course, it would make anybody angry. It would make, you know, and I thought to myself, like, would you have done this if I were a guy? Would you have done this if I were a white guy? You know, um so I think it's not there's a lot of mansplaining in this sport. There's probably mansplaining in most sports, but speaking specifically about swimming, a lot of mansplaining, a lot of um there needs to be more upliftment. You know, I personally when I think of upliftment, I my go to text is the Bois' talented Tenth, and you know, start thinking about the talented tenth and the the point of uplifting, you know, our race. And, again, initially when the text was written, it was about uplifting black men or uplifting black men being men generally. <laughs> um, eventually the language has been changed to be like, yeah, you know, maybe we should, like, conclude women, you know. Um, and, I mean, Du Bois was very critical of that. Um, but I think it's really important, and, again, that's W.E.B. Du Bois, of folks out there who <laughs> do not know about WEB Du Bois, read it, understand it, solo black folk, yes. Um, but I think it's really important to understand, like, as a black woman, you are not just fighting against the gender lines, you're fighting against the gender and the race lines. And people are like, Well, why do you gotta fight? Why do you always gotta fight? I'm like, kind of fight to be seen and heard and the only way we all know the only way to be to fight and to be seen and heard in this space is to have the times if you don't have the time and you don't have the team and you don't have the money but mostly the times and the team then you're not going to be seen nor heard you know and so it's like you're trying to fight to be seen and heard in other ways so i don't think it's just and i and this is where i will agree with miriam you know Dr. Lynch, you know, it's 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 not just the responsibility of a black man, but it is the responsibility of everyone else. It is the responsibility. A lot of that is due to structure. You know, um. But I think it is. You know, when you see when you see another like, it, you got to just do the nod. At least give me the nod. They don't run away from me. <laughs> like, I'm not scary. I'm only five two. I want to be five three. Like. <laughs> I know, I mean, just at least acknowledge, acknowledge me. Like, I mean, I remember being on the deck and I saw, like, two or three other black coaches, like, back when I was in um, Indiana. And I was just like, hey, you know, and it was like they walked left. And I'm like, what just happened here? You know, and, and so we, we just got to watch out for each other. And when you bring, when you, when you come to the table, you make sure you bring a seat. And you bring that person to the table
0: with you. We've often said on this podcast that representation matters. Now, it's great when a swimmer looks up on the deck and sees a coach that looks like them. But how much more impactful is it when they're of the same gender, sexual orientation, or are challenged with a particular disability and so on?
1: I, you know, representation, so first off, let me back up and say, Najee, I'm so glad that you do have this podcast. Um, I wish I had this podcast, and I wish I could rewind time. Like, I wish I had this podcast when I was younger. Let me just say that, let me phrase it that way. Um, And younger beyond, like, yesterday. Um, So I think it's really important to to remind ourselves like representation matters, reflection matters. And it's, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, President Obama didn't see himself and he got there, you know, and I think the one thing people forget is that, and I had a chance to hear um, our first lady, Michelle Obama speak, former first lady, Michelle, but she will always be my first lady, uh, Michelle Obama speak. And um she was talking about the fact that the concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps cannot exist if you don't have any bootstraps and if you don't even have any damn boots. Let me repeat that again. If you again I'm not quote this is not me, this is Michelle Obama. She felt, I don't know if she got it from somewhere else. I think she said it in Becoming the book. You don't have the book. But the most important part is, is that if you don't have boots, and you, if you don't have bootstraps, and if you don't have any boots, how can you pull yourself up from the bootstraps? And you have to network. You have to learn how to figure out how to do these things. And I think that there are people in our lives, let them be people from a distance or out, you know, or up close. It's just really important to see, to be able to look up on the deck or from the deck and like, or down at the deck or whatever, to see them, you know. Um, I didn't, yeah, I I was really lucky that I, you know, I had my former head coach who I still talk to and an assistant coach, you know, who were significant people in my life. Um, But I didn't have a woman coach. In fact, I believe that it was probably ingrained, not even probably, it was ingrained in me that women coaches were weak. Um, I never had a an LGBTQ plus or a queer coach as a kid. Um, I did have a coach who did have a disability. And so so these visible things were really, they were important seeing these people who look like me either on the outside or have a disability. Like those things were important. I never saw another black woman. And, you know, I don't know how that would have changed my experience. I would hope that it would would have changed it for the better and hope that it would have been, you know, somebody I could have been like, hey, how do I do this? You know when when i when my brother and i were swimming they didn't have any information on how to take care of your hair you know there was like the fact that people love their natural hair now i mean i have locks but the fact that people love their natural hair at that time that was not the case again i graduated from high school in 1997. there was this stuff like i can't even remember the name of it it was this really crappy like shampoo stuff like and, we only one place did it and we're like getting the chlorine out of your hair you you didn't want to use that it was definitely like a white girl shampoo but everybody used it and you're pressured to use it representation matters because you didn't you know you didn't know what to do with it your hair you didn't know you know it's like oh man i guess i got to use paul mitchell chlorine whatever you know i remember getting that at one point it shook my hair you know i didn't have anybody my mom didn't have anybody to talk to about Okay, like what cap should she wear? Like everybody's wearing latex Like, it's pulling her hair out. Maybe she should get silicone. Why can't she get silicone? Do we have enough money for silicone? Do you have the right resources for you? like I and mean, it's just all these questions, you know, um, so it would have been nice to have had that opportunity. I think for me, as a black coach, as a black woman, as an as an out like, pride-wearing queer black woman um, who is proud of being 5'2". <laughs> Number one, I always have my my kids, now that I have my PhD, I have my my team kids, they call me Dr. Quash, because one of the things is they probably will never meet somebody else that may, they not never, but they may not know somebody else who is a black woman who is a Dr. Quash or a doctor. There's only one Dr. Quash, but they don't, you know, So I think it's really important that I set that out there. Um, But it's really important for me that when I see another black kid, that I connect and I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And it's not that I am purposefully giving them extra attention, but I know who they are. Like I say their names. I know the other kids, too. But I say that, like I make eye contact with them. You know, I know who their parents are. Like, their parents give me the nod. It's like, hey, I see you, you see me, how you doing? The other white parents, they don't even care that I exist. They send me like, I call them <laughs> Karen Gram
0: <laughs> via
1: email, you know. So it, it's really, it's so important. Reflection is so important. I, I can tell you where I was when I saw Marissa Karaya swim. I can tell you where I was when I saw Janelle Atkinson swim. And I love, you know, and I always tell Janelle that all the time. I'm like, I know where I was when you were swimming. You know, um, and it's so great to say that Janelle is not only my friend, but the incoming CEO for International Water Safety Foundation. So it's it's, it's so important. It's so important. It's you know something that you've talked about on the on your podcast with other people is um why can't people just describe Simone Manuel as Simone a great swimmer? Why does it have to be Simone Manuel the black swimmer? Or Katie Ledecky like why can't they say Katie Ledecky if they're say Simone Manuel the black swimmer, why can't they say Katie Ledecky the white swimmer? You know, being from Indiana, why don't they just say Lily King the white swimmer, you know? Um so I, I, I wish they would I wish there was consistency. I really wish there was consistency. But there's not. There is not. And we see that even more so like let's go past Simone. Let's go past, you know, people, other women who are making these amazing strides, like Serena. Yes, we can say Serena Williams is the greatest tennis player of all time. But we always, people always have to put in there, oh, yeah, don't forget she was the first black tennis player who did X, Y, and Z. And don't forget about her sister Venus who came before her. And I also want to be like, but don't forget about Afia Gibson, by the way. You know, so it's it's always, like, it's so important. But for us as black people, I don't think we always, like, we don't have to say, oh, yeah, you know the first black person who did this because we already know. And unfortunately, it's, it's
0: not us who are controlling the narrative. Dr. Quash, you relate a story that I read about, and I want to quote you from it and then get your response. You recently wrote, quote, I was on a professional development team many years ago, and I was asked what I wanted to do with my career. My response was that I wanted to complete my doctoral program and would like to begin establishing a team. This individual said to me that I needed to choose either being an academic or a swim coach, but I couldn't do both. I often ask myself. I wonder how different this conversation would have been, if I were a man. Close quote. I'm wondering if you could expound upon this quote that I just read.
1: Yeah, Um, so there's the. The end of that, in my brain and in my heart, I also wanted to write, I wonder how different um, this conversation would have been if I were a white man, which I didn't write. And I didn't, I didn't know if that particular audience was ready for that. Um, so, <clears throat> this experience, this was a really, I was ready for this. I was going, this professional experience development trip was I was going to go like shadow and um I was finally in a place in my own swimming career where I was like, you know what? I was living in California at the time and I was like, you know, I wonder what it would take. I wonder what it would take. I wonder what like a black owned program would look like. And at the time I was at Cal State Northridge. I was doing a doctoral program there. I transferred. A lot of people, I don't, I you know, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually transferred from Cal State Northridge to Indiana University. Indiana University came knocking on the door and asked me to, like, hey, we'll give you a full ride. I was like, I'm out. <laughs> but uh, I was in California at the time, and when I went on this trip, that's what this individual said to me, and. I, I didn't know what to say, cause you know not only did this person like tell me I had to choose, but I walked away from the conversation like, "Yo, you didn't even give me the tools that I needed to create my own program." Like, like what? <laughs> you know, um, and it really, it really bothered me, and it sat with me and every time I heard this person's name in a conversation or whatever it really it like it, it really like my skin would crawl and it was until I got to Indiana University you know I you know the home of DOT Councilman, you know like you say Indiana University usually people like will say DOT Councilman and indiana swimming and you know Lily King, like in the same sentence, right? And so to be there and to still be thinking about this experience, like now, several years later, I'm just like, shoot, this is really still making it, you know, it's really in my head. And it it bothered me so much that this was not. Like, if I were, you know, if I were a guy, really, if I were a guy, we wouldn't be having the same conversation over this particular incident, you know, because um, I wouldn't have been asked that. Like, I would have to, who who makes somebody choose? Who You know, who makes them, you have to be either an academic or a swim coach. Do you know any other male swim coaches who are out there who are doing a program, let it be a master's program or I don't know too many of you who are doing doctoral programs. I know one that was, you know, doing a master's program or even getting their bachelor's. It's like, are they forced to choose? But you're telling me because I want to better myself. So at the end of the day, you get to call me Doctor Quash. And you're going to force me to choose and be like, well, you got to make either a decision to be either an academic or a swim coach. Get out of here. So, 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 so there's that then there's the hey i've got some really dope research that i want to do with you and then being told from another organization another swimming organization oh yeah well we're going to own your research i'm like you know what get out of here so if i were a white guy this wouldn't be happening do you know do you know how many times i have been passed over And it hurts me to say this, but I have been passed over. I have more knowledge. I have definitely a higher education. And I get passed over for a white guy or better yet, a white woman. Yeah. So the conversation would have been different if I were a man, a more or less a white man.
0: Finally, as we wrap up, I'm wondering if you could let our listeners know about the upcoming Diversity in Aquatics Conference that will be held next year.
1: Yep. So um, the one thing that I love about doing um, the work that I do outside of my academic work um, is I get a chance to work with, like I said, International Water Safety Foundation and Diversity in Aquatics. This year's convention, um, International, excuse me, Diversity in Aquatics, is putting it on in partnership with the Association of Aquatic Professionals AOAP uh, February 9th through 12th at St. Pete's Beach in Florida Um, the title of the theme excuse me of the convention is co-creating equitable aquatic spaces from talk to action Um, so this is three days of presentations workshop and fun so we'll have we'll have a water safety festival there will be workshops in the pool definitely some in classroom in classroom air quotes uh, workshops um but most importantly it's really highlighting the need to continue the work um and the ongoing quest for social justice equity diversity and um, inclusion and aquatics um it's most importantly an opportunity for professionals uh, researchers Uh, I I like to say pracademic, so it's that marriage between practitioners and academics. I'm a pracademic to really talk about like their work with communities. I really want to focus on the with part um, because when we do research with communities, we are not othering them, and, and again, not to talk down to anybody. But you know, when you're othering somebody, it's like, so tell me about so if you're, not, you're not being personable. Let me like, put it that way. You're just not being personable. Um, so we really work with communities. And, you know, we really want to talk about the discussions or, or sorry, the discussions are really focused on, like I said, um, aquatics as our vehicle to help to repair the root causes of oppression, with, um, which creates barriers and limited participation in our field. So that's, that's really what the convention is about. It is in person. Um, it's just going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I remember Dr. Anderson saying one time, I probably feel terrible for saying this, but it's like the one convention, you will find black men in flip-flops. <laughs> you know? It's a lot of fun um, without socks. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, you just get to meet so many amazing humans um, from across the country who are doing wonderful things. There is a gala; uh, people really dress up for the gala. There are nominations; that you can nominate um, for the 2022 Excellence in Aquatics nomination. Um, is found on our website, uh, diversityinaquatics.org/backslash convention, try saying that 20 times. There are scholarship opportunities. The scholarship opportunities cover um, the cost of the registration for the convention. That link is available on the site. The, a tentative copy of the 2022 convention schedule is also available. Outside of diversity and aquatics, there's also the celebration of International Water Safety Day with us, the International Water Safety Foundation, on a May 15th. So, please check, up, check our website on drowningawareness.org. If you're interested in participating in a Treadathon, please go to Treadathon.org. Treadathons are trademarked with the International Water Safety Foundation. Um, if you have any questions about any of this, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, or, most importantly, Diversity in Aquatics um, at info at Diversity in I do want to say, Najee, and if anybody else who's listening, Again, Dr. Miriam Lynch, who is the CEO of Diversity in Aquatics, I have said her name 50 million times. It's so important for me to, you know, promote other black women who are doing this work. Dr. Angela Tafik, who is the chair of the research council. Um, I mean, it's just really amazing. Diversity Aqu- to be around these women. Um, diversity in Aquatics has been in this game the longest um and i don't mean that to just be like well we've been here the longest diversity aquatics really has been here the longest doing this dei work so we're talking before a lot of these other organizations and so it's really important for me to say to ask um, our other brothers and sisters who are out there um, to definitely join us at convention because we want to see you and we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate us. Um, and most importantly, for our white accomplices who are out there, um, please show up and show out in a good way um, to convention. Um, some of those amazing people who are um, are also associated with diversity in aquatics Um, Dr. Nolan Rollins, who is at Delaware State University, Dr. Monica LaCour, um, she's emeritus. And just, I I feel, I I know this is not a, hey, let's plug everybody in, but I just, you know, again, it's just really important for me to tell everyone to please, please, please come to convention, come join the conference. Um, Diversity in Aquatics is, um, it, it is an organization that is, A part of all of our lives who are part of this including my wife I made it a part of her life (laughs) but we have to give props to Dr. Sean Anderson um, as one of the co-founders of the organization without him um we would not be where we are um I think it's really it's just really really important to recognize the people who have made it a part of, of, you know, we just wouldn't be. I don't even know how to describe how important Diversity in Aquatics is to me, to us. Um, Doctor, uh, excuse me, Jason Jackson, who's also a co-founder of Diversity in Aquatics. I mean, DIA. It's it's really a beautiful, beautiful organization. Um, I I don't know. I just I don't I don't know what else to say about it you know um, <laughs> I just don't know I, I will say I, let me do I will say this last thing my very first diversity aquatics convention um, I had just met now Dr. Sean Anderson um, and we had I come out to convention and that is where I met Dr. Angela Beal Tafik. if it had not been for Dr. Angela Biotafiq, I would not have my Ph.D. from Indiana University. Hmm. That is how important this network is. Um, it's, it was because of Angela, she connected me to my advisor and mentor and dissertation chair <laughs> at Indiana University. That is how precious this network is. I would not have published my first three articles. There's only three at this point. I've got three more in the hopper. But my first three articles, if it had not been for diversity in aquatics. My third article has Dr. Sean Anderson and Dr. Nolan Rollins on it. So, Diversity Aquatics is, yes, it is a network that saves lives. But it also is a network that builds your life. And these people are my family. Um, I I would not be standing, would not be here, would not be physically present if it had not been for these people. And that's how important they are to me. These They were... A lot of people who were at uh, when i got married in 2019 um were from diversity in aquatics um so yeah so yeah come on out join the family join the fun and take a smile back home so yeah
0: and we're going to have to leave it there our guest today has been dr tiffany monique quash her research focuses on the intersectionality of race Gender, class, and one's historical relationship with swimming. As a former collegiate swimmer and nation's capital swim coach, Dr. Quash works to improve the perceptions of one's black body in an aquatic space by listening to the stories of other black women swimmers. Outside of her research and publications, Dr. Quash serves as the Director of Operations with the International Water Safety Foundation, or IWSF, a nonprofit. The purpose of IWSF is, quote, raising drowning awareness while bringing basic swimming, water safety, and safe rescue skills to children, close quote. She is also the Qualitative Survey Research Methodologist for American University's Center for Teaching, Research, and Learning. Dr. Tiffany Monique Quash, we wish you and your family health and safety during these challenging times in our country, and thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines.
1: Thank you, Naji, and take care.
0: You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcasts. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Naji Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.